Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do great work. And you can find out more. Give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including William Yateman, research fellow at the uh, Cato Institute. We'll be visiting with uh, Adam Tyner, who's an associate director of research at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. We'll be talking about the best and worst metro areas for school quality. Dr. Jonathan Ellen will be joining us. We'll be talking about public health officials and Michael Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. It is December the 10th, and on this day in 1690, a failed attack on Quebec and a subsequent near-mutiny force forced the Massachusetts Bay Colony to issue the first paper currency in the history of the Western Hemisphere. France and Britain periodically attacked each other's North American colonies throughout the 17th and 18th century. In 1690, during one such war, Governor William Phipps of Britain's Massachusetts Bay Colony made a promise he could not keep. After uh, leading a successful invasion of the French colony of Acadia, Phipps decided to raid Quebec City, promising his volunteer troops half the loot in addition to their usual pay. Soldiers were typically paid in coins, but shortages of official currency in the colony sometimes forced armies to temporarily issue IOUs, in one case in the form of cut-up playing cards, which troops were allowed to exchange for goods and services until receiving their actual pay. Despite Phipps' grand promise, he failed to take the city, returning to Massachusetts with a damaged fleet and no treasure. With a shortage of coins and nothing else to pay these troops with, Phipps uh, faced a potential mutiny. With no other option, on December the 10th, 1690, the General Court of Massachusetts ordered the printing of a limited amount of government-backed paper currency to pay the soldiers. A few months later, with tax season approaching, the law was passed removing the limit on the amount of currency that could be printed, calling for the immediate printing of more and permitting the use of paper currency for the payment of taxes. The currency was initially unpopular for anything except paying taxes and was phased out Within a few years, however, paper currency would return to Massachusetts. The Bank of England I began issuing banknotes in 1695, also to pay for war against the French, and they came increasingly common throughout the 18th century. Paper money continued to stoke controversy throughout the early history of the United States, and it was tied to the value of gold for a surprisingly long time. It was not until seven, 1973 that President Richard Nixon officially ended the international convertibility of the U.S. dollar to gold. And boy, did that really kick off some inflation and some loss of the value of the dollar. But that's another story. Paper currency, 1690. Well, Jussie Smollett, as I'm sure you've heard now, has been found guilty on five out of six charges in the alleged hate crime hoax trial after a contentious week of uh, witness testimony, counsel arguments, and deliberations. The jury found Smollett guilty of the first five counts, and he was acquitted on the 6th of lying to a detective in mid-February, weeks after Smollett said he was attacked. Smollett was stoic as the jury read the verdict. The actor sat upright and stared straight ahead without showing any real emotion. 
Juglins said he was ordered a, uh, a pre-sentencing investigation and attorneys will meet via conference call to determine a date for pre-sentencing motions. The judge also said the jury will not be speaking to the media, and if, uh, ever, if they ever chose to, he was also having deputies escort them to their cars so they wouldn't be harassed by the media or others. The 39-year-old uh, Empire alum was charged with six counts of disorderly conduct related to false statements to tr Chicago police officers in regard to the 2019 hate crime against himself. In 2019, he claimed that the two men attacked him due to his skin color and sexual orientation. Since being accused of staging the attacks, Millett has maintained his innocence and said that during his two-day testimony that there were no hate crime hoax from, any, from my standpoint, he said. Prosecutors, however, argue that Smollett carried out a dry run of the attack the day before it occurred in 2019. Among the surprising claims made in Smollett's testimony was the revelation that the actor received a text from CNN's Don Lemon, or Lemon, however he pronounces his name, supposedly relaying information that the Chicago Police Department didn't believe Smollett's account of what happened. The actor claimed to have been attacked in Chicago by two men in 2019. So uh, the charge is a Class 4 felony that carries a prison sentence of up to three years, but experts have said that if convicted, Smollett would likely be placed on probation in order to perform community service. We can thank Kim Fox for that, of course, for, uh, first of all, charging with lesser felony charges, but also for uh, having a reputation for not uh, sentencing or uh, light sentences for those that break the law. So Smollett... Uh, we'll have a blemish on his record, but we'll probably end up uh, not going to jail, sadly. Well, just 16% of American adults strongly approve of the president's uh, job and his performance. This according to an NPR Marist poll. The polling number is worrisome for the president. More than a double the number of people strongly disapprove of Biden's job performance than strongly approve of it. Respondents indicated 38% strongly disapprove, 38% of jobs of Biden's job performance, 22 points greater than those who strongly support his job performance. Biden has fallen flat with independents. Only 10% of independents strongly approve of the president's performance, while a whopping 38% strongly disapprove. That's a 28-point difference. Moreover, more Democrats, 5%, strongly disapprove of Biden's job performance than Republicans strongly approve, 2%. Among white uh, college students, a key voting block for Democrats, 35% strongly disapprove of Biden's performance, while just 20% strongly approve. <laughs> Which probably explains the uh, uh, Let's Go Brandon movement uh, in college stadiums. People under the age of 45 also give the president low barks. Only 8% strongly approve of his performance, while 33% strongly disapprove. That's a bellwether going into the midterm elections, and it doesn't look good that people, I, I would imagine, Democrats running for office are going to try and distance themselves from Biden, his performance, and his policies. Just my guess. Weekly jobless claims fell again last week, tumbling to a new 50-year low, 52-year low, uh, initial filings for unemployment insurance dropped 43,000 to 184,000 for the week ending December the 4th, the lowest going back to September the 6th, 1969, which saw 182,000 men 
The pre-opening futures prices moved sharply lower on Thursday after release of the figures, likely indicating that investors think it may prompt the Fed to tighten monetary policy more quickly than anticipated. Uh, futures are up right now, though, over 100, the Dow futures anyhow. The historically low level of claims suggests that employers are reluctant to let uh, work go of workers in a very tight labor market. This could provoke further concerns about wage pressures, accelerating inflation. Job openings reached a record high 11 million in October. That's right, 11 million jobs are open right now, and employers are struggling to find people to fill those opens, openings. The uh, Department of Labor is scheduled to release its monthly report on consumer prices today. Economists expect the consumer price index to rise 6.7% from a year ago, a faster pace than the 6.2% last month. So we'll see how this all ends up. A hotter-than-expected inflation report could put even more pressure on the Federal Reserve to accelerate its removal of monetary policy aid to the economy when it meets next week. Hmm, so interesting. Many economists, economists have expected the end of extended and enhanced jobless benefits would nudge sideline workers back into the labor force, but there's little evidence of that is happening. Of course, the other uh, determinant, or the other influence, I think, on all of this is the mask mandates and the vaccine mandates that I think have turned workers off. And if they have an opportunity to change jobs, change employers, or to not work at all, I think they may be choosing to do that. Well, Florida Attorney General uh, Ashley Moody unveiled online tools on December 3rd that workers can use to easily report violations of the new law requiring employers to accept exemptions to vaccine mandates. The new online documents clearly explain the rules and the process for employees wanting to opt out of getting COVID-19 vaccines and describe the way violations would be handled. COVID-19 is an illness caused by Chinese Communist Party or CPT virus. By clearly defining the process and providing links to the easy-to-complete forms, Moody has not only given the new law teeth, but it also provides some legit tools for uninjected employees facing discriminatory working conditions. Already complaints uh, about uh, from employers are rolling in. Guidelines posted over the weekend give employees and independent contractors of employers requiring COVID-19 vaccinations access to exemption forms to meet their individual needs as defined by the state emergency rule. This is not, uh, this, you know, there's some $10,000 violation if you work for a company with fewer than 100 employees and 50000 per violation if you work for a larger company. So this is serious business and employers better pay attention. But there are, right now, employers that are trying to bypass and circumvent the new policy. And I think they would be well advised to try and stay within the policy because it's for good reason to keep the economy going. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <clears throat> Hi, 
I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambos says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Golden Gate Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected into the community and with each other. The Golden Gate Senior Center provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Tatiana Fortune, director of the Golden Gate Senior Center. We want to be able to connect you to whatever service or activity. And even if the person doesn't want to come out for socialization, if they have a question about, um, hey, where do I go for transportation? Where do I go for uh, a certain health care if they have a need? We are able to point them in that direction through our information and referral service. So we're more than happy to assist in that as well. To find out more, visit CallYourSeniorResources.org. That's CallYourSeniorResources.org or call the Senior Center directly at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social, a new refreshing social networking platform. You can find out more and download the app by the, from the choicesocial.us website. Coming up, we're going to visit with Adam Tyner, research uh, director uh, uh, of at the uh, Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Right now we have with us William Yateman. He is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, William. William, I'm so sorry I didn't pot up your microphone, so let me introduce you again. <laughs> William, welcome <laughs> to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. Uh, you bet. We're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of free society at every level of government. Cato.org is the website. Thank you, William. So uh, we've been talking now for several weeks, months, actually, about the uh, Build Back Better uh, scheme, socialist scheme for social welfare here by the Biden administration. Uh, I'd like to say this thing looks dead in the water, but what are your thoughts? Well, it's, uh, I'll say this much. It, it, uh, the prognosis doesn't look good. Um, so as we had noted, I believe last week, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had set a Christmas deadline by which to pass this so-called human infrastructure bill. 
Um, but the, pretty much everyone on Capitol Hill now concedes that there's no way that's going to happen. And the primary impediment, uh, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, um, he only doubled down this week on his concerns about inflation and how, uh, you know, until we get that under control, until we understand what's going on there, that he doesn't want to proceed with this bill. So, um, again, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that, uh, that hopeful, but now as, as ever, um, that, that Manchin will remain that roadblock and that ultimately they can't get over the hump. Um, I, I will note, well, uh, I guess the big news on the Build Back Better Act this week was that uh, but today, actually, the Congressional Budget Office is supposed to come down with an estimate of the bill's true cost. Mm. Um, now, Democrats say it costs $2 trillion or around roundabouts that. Um, but that's based on a bunch of budgeting gimmicks. Uh, in particular, they're pretending as though they don't intend for these social welfare programs to be lasting. Mm -hmm. um, so at the behest of Senator Lindsey Graham, the Congressional Budget Office is, uh, has conducted an estimate of the bill's costs over a 10-year horizon, a much more realistic horizon. And what they're expected to find in line with other independent estimates is that the true cost of the bill is well north of four trillion dollars? Mm. Um, so that's another eye-popping figure coming down the pike from Congress. Kind of Manchin's uh, comments uh, too indicates to me that he looks like he's digging in his heels. He's basically saying, "Look, if you want these socialist programs, then vote in some socialists." I'm not a socialist. I'm not voting for this stuff. <laughs> it's pretty much his position. I was pretty proud of him. Here, here. Um, you know, I saw that that line as well, and you know, it's a beautiful statement. Um, that's how our system is supposed to work. If those are the policies that ultimately carry the day, then ultimately people who support those policies, there ought to be more of them elected. <laughs> and until that's the case, then uh, you know, uh, legislators like Manchin will have their set. Absolutely. He, uh, but it also, I think, indicates the enormous amount of pressure that he must be under to try to cooperate. Uh, with the leadership uh, in the Democrat Party. Uh, but I, I commend him for standing up and, and holding strong to his principles and ideals. It's, it's just great. And then, here, here. and then moving into next year, I think it's going to become even more difficult. I mean, the popularity numbers of, of uh, Biden right now are so low that I'm sure all candidates trying to r run for office in the Democrat Party are going to try and distance themselves not only from Biden but also from his policies. It well, and I am no pollster, so th this is uh, outside of my lane. But based on my rudimentary understanding of American politics, yes, that that his uh, approval ratings, which are hovering, I believe, just at forty percent, if not below, um, are not something that lawmakers will be campaigning on next year. Yeah. So what's going on with the debt ceiling? Well, the debt ceiling. So after months of saying that Republicans wouldn't lift a finger to assist Democrats in raising the debt ceiling, which uh, I believe is at 28 point, so no, so they'd raised it yet to 28.4 trillion. Um, uh, McConnell, he's been meeting with Schumer over the last couple of weeks and they actually came to a deal. Um, and, and last evening, 14 Republicans voted with Democrats to uh, in, in effect allow a one-time exemption loophole through the filibuster process so that Democrats can set a new debt limit. Um, and accordingly, the Democrats are expected to set a, a number well north of $30 trillion. Um, mm. 
on the one hand, I, McConnell, you know, it, it is true that the Dems, the Democrats are going to have to own this number, and it's an eye-popping number, one that people will care about. On the other hand, I don't know why McConnell drew a, a line in the sand regarding this issue, and then, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, caved. Um, so if he hadn't have made that, those early bold promises regarding how Republicans wouldn't lift a finger, um, then, you know, I, I wouldn't support this by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I wouldn't raise an eyebrow. Um, and as is, you know, uh, the, the nation's debt continues its, its, its hike up, um, and $30 trillion is, is one heck of a number. Certainly is, and uh, um, you know it's kind of like McConnell, so codependent right now with Schumer and, and what they're doing. Basically, say, okay, this is the last time we're not doing it any <laughs> anymore. <laughs> just like a parent caving into their kid, it's just uh, unfortunate. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, just moving on though to the vaccine mandate, I was pretty proud of the Senate for standing up to the vaccine mandate uh, against the presence of uh, administration and his executive orders. But uh, probably it's not going to pass the House, is it? it alas, the, process, the, the, the chances of success for this measure are low in the House. Just to recap briefly, um, the Senate uh, also yesterday exercised this Congressional Review Act, which in effect allows a critical mass of senators to avoid a filibuster for what is known as a legislative veto. And all that means is that it's a bill or a law that Congress passes that nixes a recent administrative action regulation, such as the OSHA vaccine mandate. Um, two Democrat senators voted with the entire GOP caucus, uh, the usual suspect, Joe Manchin, but also Senator Tester from Montana. Um, as you note, there's because there is no similar mechanism by which a critical mass of lawmakers could force Pelosi's hand in the House, it would require uh, – uh, it's a much bigger lift. I'll put yeah. it that way. Yeah. Um, so – and even if, even were it to survive the, uh, the House, then uh, President Biden ultimately would veto it. Yeah. Uh, all that being said, I'm in no way downplaying the effort. It's an important – it's a big deal. I mean, if Congress should be in this uh, – uh, Congress should have its voice felt when it comes to these major regulations coming out of the executive branch. So um, I applaud this effort, and I do think it serves the salutary effect of drawing attention to political opposition, widespread political opposition, bipartisan political opposition to this vaccine mandate. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm so proud of the Senate for doing that. And, of course, it has no chance of survival of becoming law. But irrespective, it's an important statement uh, to the American people about where they stand, and it kind of isolates the president with regard to his his uh, policies on uh, vaccine mandates. William Aitman, exactly. again, research fellow at the uh, Cato Institute. I encourage you to visit the very robust website, cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. William, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> I meant to uh, say that uh, we're going to visit with Michael Cannon. He is the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Luke Provence, located in the historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Luke Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000-square-foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, not only building a beautiful 44,000-square-foot performing arts center in downtown Naples, but bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best and at terrific uh, value. You can visit the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Dr. Jonathan Ellen. Right now we have with us Michael Cannon. Michael is a, a director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here, Bob. Thank you, Michael. Uh, you know, right now, I guess the big issue uh, f in terms of public health is what's happening with Omicron. And we're learning a little bit uh, week by week, day by day. Uh, any thoughts and updates? Yeah. So, you know, we've known from the beginning of this pandemic, uh, we've known because we saw it happen with flu pandemic that as the coronavirus enters our bodies, replicates within our bodies over and over again, there are going to be changes in its genetic makeup. There are going to be these mutations that change how it behaves when it reaches a new host. Some of these changes, most of them you've probably never even been heard about because scientists don't even detect them because they make the virus less dangerous. But some of them are making it more dangerous. The Delta variant made the coronavirus more transmissible. Now Omicron is doing the same. And uh, there's, so there's, there's also fears that it might make the – there's some evidence that the disease might be more mild with Omicron, but if it can, uh, if you can transmit it faster, that could still make it more dangerous. And we're not sure that it, it's going to make the disease uh, less – or the virus less virulent. And so 
transmissible it is, and there is uh, concern that the best defense we have against the coronavirus, which are vaccines, may not work as well against Omicron. Mm -hmm. There is evidence suggesting that the antibody levels of people who are uh, vaccinated are much, the, the levels of antibodies among vaccinated people uh, that will attack Omicron are much lower than uh, they were for Delta and much lower than they were for the other original strains of, uh, of the virus. And so you have people recommending uh, not only booster shots in order to, which are, uh, many people I think are, good, are a good idea anyway, but also booster shots specifically to guard against Omicron and the companies that are manufacturing vaccines are saying that they are going to be developing a new vaccine specifically targeted at Omicron, yeah. and they think they may be able to have those available by March. Don't you think that that's just uh, rushing uh, the gun? It's just, uh, shouldn't we just find out how severe this uh, Omicron virus is? As I've heard people report that it hasn't any more influence than the common cold right now. Uh, and, and of course, typically viruses become less and less virulent as they uh, as they develop. That's the usual behavior. So uh, shouldn't we just uh, wait and see? I think there's wisdom in that approach. You know, scientists are still collecting data on Omicron. We don't know everything we need to know about it. I'm not, I don't think we know yet whether the benefits of a an Omicron targeted vaccine will outweigh the costs. Uh, we need to collect more data. Yeah, but it is possible that with this virus, uh, it may mutate so much that it becomes uh, worthwhile for people to get an annual coronavirus shot, like people often get an annual flu shot. And it might be essential for everybody. It might be more important for more vulnerable people to get an annual coronavirus shot. But these sorts of uh, mutations and variants are uh, are, su are suggesting that that strategy uh, might be where we eventually end up. Well, I, I just uh, have real questions about the uh, Dr. Fauci and the uh, FDA and these organizations, that are CDC, that jumped to the conclusion that we need to have more and more vaccines. I mean, this all plays into the hands of big money, big pharma. Uh, I really do have some questions about the ultimate, the objective, and whether it's, there's nefarious efforts to uh, try and skew the research to support this uh, this overly vaccined uh, society. I think that is a healthy suspicion, and that should be part of the debate over not only this vaccine. But every drug that the FDA approves, yeah, and I think the more suspicious people are about that, um, uh, the more closely they will look at the actual data that these companies uh, accumulate, and the more they will demand data from independent resources. And unfortunately, the government has done a lot to suppress the ability of the private sector right. to collect data on these very questions leaving us only with the FDA, which unfortunately is uh, under heavily influenced by drug companies. There's no question. In fact, uh, in my understanding, I read a column that suggested that NIH has a lot of influence on where the money goes to fund research. 
And obviously, if you're not uh, supporting Dr. Fauci's view and uh, his view of the world around vaccines, you're probably not going to get funded. That is uh, 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 a danger of having government direct uh, medical research is that the that funding can become captured by politics. Yeah. And if you want medical research to push in all sorts of different directions, you don't want to have that funding be subject to those sorts of political forces. You want diversity among funders. Uh, and, um, and and there's, there's plenty of evidence of, uh, of, of government, when government tries to do this research itself, actually quashing uh, agencies that do really good medical research because that research threatened the interests of uh, people who are making lots of money off of uh, questionable yeah. uh, uh, treatments. Well, I, and I know that you're, you're objective and you want to remain uh, objective in, in your commentary. And, of course, needless to say, I have my own biases here. So uh, I want to acknowledge that and honor that. On the other hand, I do, I do want to ask you about the vaccinating children. It seems to me there's a cost-benefit analysis, and it seems to me that the uh, benefits of vaccinating children at this stage, especially with the unknowns, uh, the benefits are way below any kind of uh, uh, the risk that we have in putting children and, and vaccinating children at this point. Well, this is another area where you and I disagree. I have two, uh, three children, ages uh, uh, 12 and 8, and uh, we have fully vaccinated all three of them. Uh And that's because in our estimation, the benefits do outweigh the cost. The vaccines are very safe. Millions upon millions of people have taken them. The adverse reaction is extremely rare. The risk of myocarditis, we talked about my concern that uh, my eldest son might have that reaction. Uh, uh, Further evidence has shown that those risks are extremely rare and that the risks of getting a coronavirus are much greater. And so I do think, you know, and I, while I understand the concern that the parents have, because um, I, like you, try to be very skeptical of, of, uh, of, of drug industry claims about new medications that haven't been tested well enough. These medications have been tested uh, both in clinical trials and in real-world observational studies. Uh, and the evidence says to me that they are highly effective yeah. and, uh, and remarkably safe, even for children. And so now, you know, uh, that the FDA has uh, said that uh, 16 and 17-year-olds should get boosters, and they've approved the Pfizer vaccine for, for that purpose. Uh, it's probably going to be the case that they're going to uh, collect additional data, make those recommendations about uh, wow. children younger than 16, and we'll have to revisit these questions. That's Not an right. automatic slam dunk that you get the kids to boosters. That, that's exactly right. Well, I hope you're right, Michael. I hope <laughs> your uh, uh, points of view, uh, your bias is uh, absolutely right, quite frankly, and I hope I'm wrong. Michael Kikan, again, uh, Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. Michael, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Tom. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, Adam Tyner, Associate Director of Research at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned. 
tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months, finally having exhausted all alternatives for pain management. Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America and is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Dr. Jonathan Ellen. We'll be speak, talking about uh, uh, public health officials and uh, their bias. Right now we have with us Adam Tyner. He's the Associate Director of Research at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Thank you, Adam. Tell us about the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. The Thomas B. Fordham Institute is a nonprofit, nonpartisan education policy think tank based in Washington, D.C., and we do uh, education research and commentary around lots of national education policy issues. The Thomas B. Fordham Institute also has a presence in Ohio, where our namesake, uh, Mr. Thomas B. Fordham, was from, and we do policy work in Columbus, and we also are a charter school authorizer in the state of Ohio, and so we have an office in Dayton that, that works with that. So it's kind of a unique aspect of our organization, and we have kind of an on-the-ground presence, and then we do state policy work and the national policy, too. But I work out of uh, out of the you know on the national research team, which is based in Washington D.C. Yeah. So Adam, uh, it's so interesting. Uh, you just came out with a report: America's best and worst metro areas for school quality. I'd love to find out who's best and who's worst. But before we do, what are some what are the metrics that you use in order to make these decisions? 
So we have a few metrics that we've constructed on the website, which is available at metro.fordhaminstitute.org. And the website that we've built in this online report is interactive. It's not like a PDF to download or something. You can just go on there on your tablet or on your phone at metro.fordhaminstitute.org, and you can interact with all the data that we've put together. So what we've put together is some of the only data that exists for schools that is nationally comparable. Some researchers at Stanford over the last few years have been putting together this massive data set of all the schools in the country that is basically data that's comparable across the country, which never existed before. They're using state standardized tests. So this is mostly test score data, although we also use some data from high school graduation rates. It's federal data. But we use those test scores in grades three through eight in reading and math, which have to be uh, administered in every state according to federal law. And uh, that data has been sort of renormed based on the few national tests that we have. And, uh, and what it does is gives us data that we can compare across the country. And in this case, no one had ever used that data to compare metro areas before as a unit. And so we wanted to look at the metro areas of the country and see who was the best and who was the worst. But we have a real focus at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute on, on student growth and student progress. And that's the measure we think most captures school quality. Lots of traditional measures of school quality are just about the, the average level. And it might sound like a technical difference, but it's actually key to understanding how schools should be rated. Because if you look at just the average level, well, students come in at a lot of different levels when they enter school. So what you see at the end or what you see when you take a snapshot largely reflects the demographics of the place, and it doesn't have that much to do with the impact the schools themselves are making. But when you focus on student growth, you're really seeing, well, they're making this much progress year to year. That's something that's much more under the school's control. And so when we, what our focus on in this report is, is, is to focus on student growth, control for demographics, try to make the fairest apples to apples comparisons across our nation, and then see who comes in, who comes in better and worse. But we really, we make all the data, including just average academic achievement available to interact with at metro.fordhaminstitute.org. You can go in and play with it. You can create your own rankings. You can click on the interactive maps. So it was really a lot there for people to check out. You know, and, and I've, I'm sitting here looking at it right now. It's really uh, quite easy to use, I, I would say. Uh, before we talk about the states, though, uh, how are we doing nationally? Are we progressing? Are, is, are, school, are kids getting better quality education? Well, I think there have been some strides in recent years, but during the pandemic, I think we've taken a huge you know, step backwards. And yeah. I think that's very clear nationally that schools have just really struggled during the pandemic. A lot of places have struggled to keep their schools open at all. Lots of students have been learning remotely if they were learning at all. There's some students that have just dropped out of the system completely. So there's a lot of, a lot of struggles during the pandemic. What we have here is actually all pre-pandemic data. So this really gives us a picture of what the schools were like when the world was more normal yeah. and the world that we hope we'll be going back to. But of course, for some places, if they weren't doing very well before, they might not really need to be going back to normal. They may need to change things so that they're really doing something different and yeah. delivering better than they were. All right. So tell us about what are the top metro areas for school quality? So 
uh, in the in the list of so we have a hundred metros that we rank, and we we put them in kind of two tiers. And uh, we have the 50 largest, and then we have the 50 mid-sized because, you know, once you're talking about the kind of mid-sized metros, they're quite a bit different in size than the, than the very largest. So we broke them up into those two groups. And of the 50 largest metros, the number one metro is not too far from you guys, the Miami metro, which includes Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties, wow. it's, you know, much of South Florida. Uh, that comes in number one in our in our rankings of the the best metros for school quality. That's so interesting, and I'm seeing other uh, communities like uh, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles. These are surprising names to see on school quality. Yeah, in some cases that's true. Um, it, the truth is that you know when you look at student growth and you focus on the progress that students are making, and you control for demographics and everything, it really gives you a different kind of picture of school quality than you would get if you just looked at that average level. And that really is reflected here because you'll see some places like Miami that actually has pretty decent overall academic achievement. San Jose is another place that has very high academic achievement. Achievement in San Jose, California in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, that area has very high achievements, also coming in pretty strong in our ratings at number seven. But then you've got places like Memphis that have pretty low average achievement, but still do really well in our rankings. Memphis is actually number two. On the flip side, when you look at the worst metros, yeah. you see the same thing. It, it's You've got places that have really high average achievement, like Raleigh in North Carolina, that's a place that has really high average achievement, but it is very poor in our rankings, which suggests they're not making a lot of progress with the students that they have. They come in number 48. On the other hand, Las Vegas, Nevada, and Baltimore are two of the other ones at the bottom of the list, and those uh, metros have very low academic achievement. So it's really a different way of looking at school quality to focus on growth, and it does turn up some surprises sometimes. Yeah, so interesting. It, it, uh, it, it, I would encourage our listeners to go to the website, metro.fordhaminstitute.org, metro.fordhaminstitute.org, and check out uh, this very interesting uh, study uh, called America's Best and Worst Metro Areas for School Quality. Uh, you know, Adam, I really appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Bob. Have a good day. You as well. Thank you, Adam. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Dr. Jonathan Ellen. We're going to be talking about public health, that and more, right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.com. 
stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government does provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website thefga.org. We have with us uh, Dr. Jonathan M. Ellen. He is a pediatrician, an epidemiologist, and a public health accommodation, and former CEO of the Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So you've written a column, The Pandemic Failures of Public Health Agencies Owe Much to Mission Creep. Maybe you can tell us about it. Yeah, so what what one of the I've been in the public health world for a long time and one of the concerns that I have um is the fact that as the public health the, the federal public health uh entities have started to expand their focus it, it really has raised two issues. One is they've definitely gone into areas that um are broader than really the public health mandate and start to intrude on uh, questions of policy, mm-hmm. such as school closing, closings um, and other things like that, where you really want to get a consensus across, you know, across the community locally or nationally versus just having people at CDC declare that this is the way we need to go. The second issue is that as they broaden their focus, they lose their focus. And so it, it's kind of like a company diversifying and then realizing that that they've lost their mission. And I feel that way that as we've gotten into a lot of what I consider social policy issues in public health, which I think are important issues, but I think are not really the purview of, of, of focus in public health. So, uh, and doctor, my opinion is that uh, it's certainly reduced the credibility of public health agencies like the CDC uh, you know, I'm, I'm very suspicious of the information. I, I would much prefer, for the example, the CDC to say everybody should get some sunshine every day, take some vit- vitamin E, zinc, you know, <laughs> so forth, as yeah. well as getting vaccinated and then list the the concerns uh, of vaccinations versus the possible benefits. Uh, but uh, it seems to me there's kind of a skewing of information, creating some distrust, especially in people like me. Yeah, and that was kind of the point that I, I ended with in the, in the in the piece that you, that you quoted, is that in the end, 
this approach creates this trust, and then that makes them much less effective. And the more there is solid that science is confused with policy, yeah, the more you're going to build distrust because people want to say, well, if this is really a policy statement, I want to know the positives and the negatives of it, which is what you're referring to, versus you know it's purely you know and and that's how people want to see policy. A lot of times, what we think that people are arguing or CDC argues is science. Is really policy. I couldn't agree more. And uh, so, what can we do to correct the situation? Because I think, I think right now, I, I'm even losing. You know, I think there's some certain protocols in hospitals and so forth that uh, are being mandated or at least influenced by the CDC. It makes me even distrustful of local hospital health. Yeah. No, I wish I had a simple answer to that that issue. I think the first the thing is to actually start giving voice to it. Mm-hmm. And um, and the voice doesn't need just to be that, you know, I, I don't buy into vaccines or I don't. It's really that, I you know, it's this particular issue is that I think some we need to start reining in some of the, the expansiveness of the CDC. Yeah, and, uh, you know, to me it appears that, in fact, uh, the, uh, for example, the Dr. Fauci, and his peers are have a have an agenda. It seems to be aligned with big mm-hmm. pharma and vaccines. Uh, am I wrong, or is it? I mean, does it seem to me that uh, things like therapeutics are being set aside for the uh, just the cure all of uh, vaccines? Well, I think this notion of cure all is kind of is one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Is that there is one everyone wants to write things off to people who hate and people who like, but really what you're talking about is people say, look, I'd rather balance the risk against the benefits versus people saying, I want no risk. Mm-hmm. And the, the Fauci approach is no risk, and we're going to keep driving this thing to no risk, no matter what it does to our economics, our kids' development, our individuality, our individual privacy rights. And then you've got people saying, wait a second, this is a balance, and I want to live my life like it's a balance. And you get this sort of – and so it does fit into – to, to some degree to what you're pointing out, which is that this absolutism, risk-free world that, that, you're, that, that the Fauci's are pushing is not what we should be having our debates about. Yeah, and, and doctor, I mean, isn't, uh, for example, if, you, if you're suffering uh, psychological, uh, psychologically, like children might be without a proper mm-hmm. education, if you're suffering mm-hmm. uh, from a lack of income because if you've lost your job, these things have impact on health overall as well as, for example, the pandemic. Yeah, and so like the opiate crisis got worse, yeah. the, sexual, you know, the, the child abuse crisis got worse. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of things. That, that's why I'm saying that, this, this idea that we'll do anything to get the virus to zero, even at the expense of child development, of opiate addiction, of loss of economic value, um, is, is where the whole thing starts to break down. And that's where I think the creep has gotten into where we've gone from expertise, with declare, giving people the right to be experts, but not declaring them have the right to be policy. Uh, so well said, Doctor. And, and the other, of course, concern is... Uh, the debate is being suppressed. There's only one point of view that's being promoted, allowed in social media and allowed in the, uh, uh, by this administration, is pretty much uh, if you don't agree with uh, Dr. Fauci and with the CDC, you're an anti-vaxxer, and therefore you're the cause of all of our problems. No, and, and I'll tell you, it's, it's an interesting point. I, um, I'm a pretty much a middle-of-the-road kind of moderate guy, yeah. but the only place that I can get that I actually hear 
uh, critical debate is much more on the right side of the political spectrum than the left side of the political spectrum. Yeah. So it's it's really it's it's exactly your point is that the, the dialogues always start with a particular assumption, like you said, in most of the media outlets, and and that's what and it's also the government, their communication. It's a very one-sided deal, and it's not it's not a, it's not right. It's not intellectually right. It's not science. Unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, Doctor, is there a website, or how can we find out more about you and your points of view? Uh, dot com is the website. Doctor, I just really appreciate your very refreshing point of view on these issues. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, and have a great day. You as well. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. On Monday, as usual, going to visit with Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about uh, uh, current global events up to the minute, always with Mark. We'll visit with Larry Reed, the president emeritus of the uh, Foundation for Economic Education, and Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington bureau chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries. Follow the leader in its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Always appreciate your comments here on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.